We're in Mark 7, verse 24. It says, From there he arose, Jesus, and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, And she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. But Jesus said to her, Let the children be filled first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. And then he said to her, For this saying, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. So Jesus departs the land of Israel and goes to the area north to Lebanon, the area of Tyre and Sidon, along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, It's 50 or so miles north of Israel. He enters a house. He's still seeking a place to rest. It has been. Yeah. He's still seeking a place of rest, some quiet, some solitude. Not only has Jesus left the building, but he left the country. He didn't travel often outside of Israel. And when he did, it was not far. He came as promised first to Israel to be in their, to be their deliverer and Savior, and we see that special emphasis in this account. You know, Jesus was facing a lot of hostility during this time. People were actually plotting, planning to kill him. And so he gets away, and the, and the crowds are massive. They're continually there. So he steps out. He was likely invited by someone to visit this area for the purpose of resting. Maybe he rented an Airbnb along the coast there. But he comes to this house that is not his own. We don't know whose house this is. Uh, Jesus said to someone who volunteered to follow him wherever he went in Luke chapter 9, verses 57-58. says, Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere. To lay his head. Jesus lived from hole to hole and from nest to nest. Some teach that he was wealthy and owned many houses. This was only true in a spiritual sense. He lived at the provision of the Father and the hospitality and generosity of others. He did not want others to know that he had come here. He's been surrounded by these crowds for some time now, giving himself to the concerns of their needs whenever and wherever they have flocked to him, pressing him from all sides, running ahead of him when they see where he's headed, or following after him to find where he has gone. In patience and compassion, he has met the needs of all who have come to him. And he's taught them as only he can do. The Lord has given teachers to his church, but only secondarily and supplementally. He is the teacher of his people by the ministry of his Holy Spirit, and he is your teacher. Over in 1 John chapter 2, the Apostle John writes to us, it's uh, chapter 2, verse 26, says, These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. There were many deceivers already who had gone out into the world. He says, But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. Uh, Who is that anointing? That anointing is the Holy Spirit. He's sent to dwell within us. And you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has been taught you, you will abide in him. Now the Holy Spirit is our teacher, Jesus in the person of the Holy Spirit. So if you're born again by the Spirit of God, then you have this anointing in your life. The Holy Spirit dwells in your spirit, and he's the one who teaches you. He will use those he has given to his body for this purpose, but it is what you receive from him through his body or directly from him in communion with him 
that brings understanding and maturity in him. He wants a one-on-one relationship with each of his sheep, and he is able to do this. You know, we have to divide our attention among various needs, but he does not have to. He's awesome. How can we know? How can we be sure that we are taught of him and not deceived? We know from the written record that he has inspired, it's God-breathed, we are told, by his spirit, and he will never teach us contrary to what he has already spoken. He does not want anyone to know that he's come to this house, but as usually happens, he could not be hidden. It's quite possible that Jesus has come with this encounter in mind. For whatever reason, here he is. You know, if someone's seeking the Lord, he will be found. A person may not know where he is, or even is God real? Does he have a plan? How can I know him? The Lord spoke through Jeremiah in chapter 29 and verse 13. He said, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. He's speaking to Israel in the context of their captivity and rebellion against them. And he says, you know, when you're away in this captivity in this land and you realize what the situation is and you call on me, You'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Uh, This is spoken of by Moses in Deuteronomy 4.29 when he talks about, you know, he's telling them ahead of time, this is going to happen. You're going to be removed from the land at some point. He says, but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. So the Lord will be found by anyone who seeks him with all their heart. Anyone who's in captivity, who has been taken captive in any way by sin, in bondage to iniquity, and desires to be free, will find freedom in Jesus as they call on his name and seek him with all their heart. But it only takes a simple prayer uttered in sincerity. God, if you're there, if you're real, please show me, and he will be found. This is because God is also always seeking man he seeks by his holy spirit to draw all people to jesus for salvation in luke 19 and verse 10 jesus in the encounter with zacchaeus he says in verse 10 for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost this is his purpose in coming into the world to seek and to save that which is lost Over in John chapter 4, when he speaks to the woman at the well, she's asking him, you know, are you guys right worshiping in Jerusalem or is it here in Samaria? And he says in verse 23, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God is seeking men and women who will worship him. This is his desire, and so he draws. In the Second Chronicles, chapter 16 and verse 9, uh, it's in the context of King Asa, or Asa, if you remember him. Um, he had been besieged by some enemies early on. He was vastly outnumbered, and he made a statement of faith that, hey, the Lord can deliver. It doesn't matter how many. can be delivered and the Lord worked and did deliver them and then later he encountered this same situation and he called on neighboring nations to come and help and and the Lord said because you've done this haven't relied on me Uh, this guy this king has escaped you know who I intended for you to to bring down so it's really in the context of a rebuke of Asa, but uh, 2 Chronicles 16 and verse 9 says this, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. He says, In this you've done foolishly, therefore from now on you shall have wars, speaking to Asa, because he didn't trust in the Lord. And the Lord tells him, Look, the eyes of the Lord are running to and fro throughout the earth. Why? To show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. 
F.B. Meyer says, What an exquisite thought is suggested by the allusion to the eyes of the Lord running to and fro throughout the whole earth. At a glance, he takes in our position. Not a sorrow, trial, or temptation visits us without exciting his notice and loving sympathy. In all the whole wide earth, there is not one spot so lonely, one heart so darkened as to escape those eyes. In John 12, verse 32, Jesus made the statement, I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. I will draw all to myself. This is his ministry and his desire. But will we be drawn or will we resist the Holy Spirit? In Isaiah 59, and verse 16, the Lord is speaking through Isaiah, speaking in this context of the... Uh, here the Lord's not heavy, the arm of the Lord is not shortened so that it cannot save. In verse 16 of Isaiah 59, he says, He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. The Lord was looking for a man who could stand in the gap, who would be an intercessor. And, and the Lord says, man, there's, there's nobody here. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him and his own righteousness it sustained him. The Lord's going to accomplish what he desires to accomplish. But he wants to use men. He's seeking men that they might be in relationship with him, fellowship with him, and be used in these things. So he's looking for that which is lost. He's come to seek and save that which is lost. And when he finds that which is lost, he rejoices over it. The angels in heaven rejoice with him when that which has been lost is found. In Luke 15 and verse 10, it says, Likewise, Jesus says, Likewise, I say to you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That whole chapter of Luke 15 is all about lostness and finding. And so this is very close, very dear to the loving heart of God. He's seeking that which is lost so he's in this house he doesn't really want anybody to know that he's there but word leaks out Jesus is in the house Jesus the healer Jesus the miracle worker Jesus the one you've heard about all the things that have been happening all the things that he is doing and so this woman who is in distress hears that Jesus has come to the area and she finds out where he is and she comes and falls down on his, at his feet to beseech him to deliver her daughter. King James says young daughter. Uh, the, it, it, it indicates a little girl. Um, we don't know her age, but it's the diminutive form of daughter that is being used. So this is a small child uh, who has an unclean spirit. She's demonized. We don't know how she came to be in this condition. You know, we know that there are certain things that can open the door um, to possession. Um, but we don't have any of the details about her. We don't know what um, symptoms she was exhibiting. The daughter's almost peripheral to the event. She's not, of course. She's the one who is delivered. But the mother is the one ministered to by Jesus in a rather special way. We know nothing of the daughter but that she is set free by, by Jesus from the power of darkness. Now someone noted that later on Paul comes back from one of his missionary journeys and he lands in this area and meets believers from here and says, maybe this woman was there, you know, able to talk to them about her experience. And maybe the daughter was there. We don't know. Uh, it tells us in verse 26 that the woman was a Greek. I mean, she's a Gentile. She's not a Jew. She was of Syro-Phoenician background. The Phoenicians were a strong seagoing people, and they established a far-flung empire based on sea trade. They dominated the Mediterranean Sea for some time, and their ships would ply their trade all along the Mediterranean, and they had... Uh, Phoenicians lived as far as southern Spain, around the Rock of Gibraltar. They 
colonized the northern part of Africa to the west. And of course, they settled in this area. Um, as they were in this area, they were actually conquered by several different groups. You know, the Assyrians, Assyrians, they were conquered by Babylon, they were conquered by um, Alexander as he came through this area. So they, this group was the Syrophoenicians who lived in this area. Matthew simply calls her a Canaanite, and that was how they referred to themselves, that you know, we're Canaanites. Jesus condemned Chorazin and Bethsaida because he said, if the mighty works which had been done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. He knows how they would have responded if they had seen the things that were done in Chorazin and Bethsaida. And he tells them it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for them than it will be for you because we're judged according to the light that we have, according to the understanding that we have. It's fascinating to read the account of ancient Tyre's destruction in Ezekiel 26. It's prophesied in Ezekiel 26. And if you see the details of that, uh, it, it's just intricate details of the entire event that has happened. So this is a Gentile woman. The Jews avoided contact with the Gentiles. They'd be rendered unclean by coming in contact with them, according to their own traditions. And what we see in this encounter is another instance in which Jesus breaks from the tradition of the Jews of his day. He treats a Gentile, a Gentile woman, no less, as if she were a person. A person the same as a Jewish person. A Jewish male would pray a familiar Jewish prayer. God, I thank you that I was not born a Gentile, but a Jew. Not a slave, but a free man. Not a woman, but a man. This was what many of the Jewish men in Israel would pray. Uh, I'd heard it quoted at times, you know, thank you that I wasn't born a dog. I, I didn't find any confirmation of that. But you could kind of see somebody even praying that, you know, if because they referred to uh, Gentiles as dogs and in a negative sense, you know. And, and we'll see that comes into play here with Jesus. So, thank you. I wasn't born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Well, this lady has two of the three strikes against her already, according to the tradition of Judaism. She's a Gentile and she's a woman. It says the woman asked him to cast the demon out of her daughter, and it really means that she keeps asking him. She's talking. She's continually talking to Jesus. And uh, as we'll see, Jesus at first doesn't respond. It's like she's not there, that she doesn't exist. But she keeps asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And we notice her persistence in asking this is her one request, and she keeps at it. There's a desperation in her heart and in her plea, and Jesus is her one hope. Mark, as in many instances, gives us a bare-bones account. Matthew relates the incident more fully, and he records that as this woman is pleading with Jesus, he ignores her. Typical Jewish male. In Matthew chapter 15, this other account, uh, verse 22, it says, Behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel she cries out she recognizes who he is here's a Gentile who knows about the promise of the son of David she calls out to him son of David have mercy on me you know at one point Lebanon this area of Tyre and Sidon and Israel were quite close and David had relation with uh, the king of Tyre as did Solomon and they received many building materials from there and, and Hiram 
uh, reportedly was a great lover of David. And so uh, the people of this region knew about David. And then they had received this report of Jesus, the son of David. Has she been seeking the God of Israel? And so Jesus seeks her out. But Jesus answers her not a word, no response. How discouraging would this be? It doesn't seem like the Jesus we know and read about. Where is the compassion? Where is the mercy and the tenderness? It's there, but Jesus is about to make a huge point with his actions. Earlier in chapter 7, Jesus demonstrated that all foods are clean as far as defilement of the heart. God's not so concerned about foods. Your diet may make you healthy, but it cannot make you holy. Jesus is about to demonstrate that Gentiles also are not unclean, a point that God makes with Peter in Acts chapter 10 later. And God will treat them the same as the Jews. He loves them, us. Assume that most of us are Gentiles. Might be a little Jewish blood here. He loves them and he loves us and he will save them the same as he will save the Jew. Henry Morris says, The Lord Jesus had come into the world to die for the sin of the whole world, but he had also come as Israel's promised Messiah. I've been sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, he says. His seeming harshness to the Canaanite woman is best understood as not only a test of her faith in the God of Israel, but also as a means to show his disciples that Gentiles were also included in God's plan and that they too could have saving faith. We find this referenced in the Old Testament in in many places. You pay a light to the Gentiles, but they seem to have glossed over this. Jesus had used this same phrase, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, when he first sent out the twelve to minister to those lost sheep. We read about it in Mark, in a version in Matthew chapter 10. He references this. He says, just, I just want you to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Don't go to the Gentiles and to these other areas. The gospel was to go to the Jew first. We read that in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. However, when the Lord later sent the disciples out again, This is later in the book of Acts after the resurrection. They were directed to witness both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. A lot of Gentiles included in that. So Jesus knows this woman as he knows each one of us and he's using this situation to teach a valuable lesson to his disciples and to us. Jesus knows her love for her daughter. And he knows she will not give up easily. She won't give up without a fierce battle and a definite outcome. She certainly won't turn away without a word, not without a response from this man. Do we become discouraged in our prayers for that which we desire? Not for our own benefit, but for those those whom we love? Do we give up easily? If there's no response that we can detect, do we abandon our petition? Do we assume a no answer without actually hearing it? As has been said before, the Lord honors persistence in prayer. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, Jesus said, Ask, it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. And in a lot of our translations, we don't really get the tense of this. What Jesus is saying is, uh, keep on asking, keep on seeking, and keep on knocking. There's that persistence in, in seeking God. We see an illustration in the life of Jacob uh, when he would wrestled all night long with this man who turned out to be the angel of the Lord. It's in Genesis chapter 32, in verse 24, Uh, Jacob is returning from Laban. He's already had an encounter with Laban, and that went as well as could be expected. (laughs) He escaped with his life and his family and his his flocks. And so he's heading to see Esau, his brother, the one whom he had cheated. (laughs) 
how his uh, with the medicine part. Well, he actually sold it to him. It was a legitimate transaction, but he was somewhat deceptive. And then he got the blessing from uh, Isaac by dressing up as his brother at his mother's uh, insistence. So he's coming to see Esau, and, and he hears Esau's coming with hundreds of men to meet him. <laughs> that would scare you. And so he comes up with this plan to scatter his flocks and his family, you know, and send them out ahead. He sends them across this brook that he's at. And in verse 24 of Genesis 32, it says, Then Jacob was left alone. Here he is alone. He's the only one he has is his God. He's there by himself. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Sometimes you might wrestle all night long. And when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. So he put, puts the socket of Jacob's hip out of joint, which affected Jacob. He limped the rest of his life and walked with his, with his staff. But as we learn about this man, he, I mean, he could have defeated Jacob you know, without any significant effort. So he's wrestling with Jacob, not because he has to wrestle with him, but because it's for Jacob's benefit again. And he says to Jacob, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I'll not let you go unless you bless me. We see the persistence of Jacob hanging on to this man who could easily break free. Uh, He could wipe Jacob out if he chose to. You know, there's no contest here, really. But Jacob is clinging persistently. I'm not letting you go unless you bless me. This is after his hip is out of joint. You know. And so this man says to him, what's your name? And he said, Jacob, supplanter. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. And here's where he receives this new name. After this, he has a changed nature. He says, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. So this indicates this persistence, this faith that Jacob is exhibiting here. And Jacob asks, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask my name? You ask about my name. And he blessed him there. So we don't get the words of this blessing as he blesses Jacob. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Jacob understood what was going on here. You know, it's a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus wrestling with uh, Jacob. So uh, God honors this persistence in prayer. Uh, in this instance, God is testing Jacob, Jacob's faith, tens, tensile strength. That's how far can it be stretched? How much tensile strength does our faith have? Are we willing to let it be stretched, clinging to the Lord, not letting him go? Asking, seeking, knocking until we get an answer. We've read in the past, you know, we dealt with this not long ago, the same concept, uh, the record of the unjust judge in Luke 18, the first eight verses there. Jesus makes the point that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. I'll leave it to you to read this once again for your benefit. And again, the emphasis is upon persistence. Keep, it keeps, she keeps coming for um, a just outcome. To this judge, just as the man who went to his neighbor knocking for bread, and just the guy had to get up and come and give him bread because he wouldn't stop. Well, Steve was talking about how difficult it can be to pray sometimes, and really, we're just talking to God. We're talking to our Father. Maybe we're we're talking to Jesus. You know, it doesn't mean our words have to be perfect. You know. Many times it's difficult to express what's actually in our heart in, in words. What about this woman's prayer? We'll see in Matthew, she just says, Lord, help me. That's a pretty good prayer. 
You don't have to have a lot of fancy words. So the woman here is hanging on. It must seem to her that Jesus does not even acknowledge her presence. In addition, Matthew again tells us the disciples urge Jesus to send her away. She's bugging us. And she's just a Gentile woman. And they say, she keeps crying out after us. Well, she wasn't really. She was crying out after Jesus. Just send her away. They watch Jesus. And it seems to them that he does not want to respond to her. So get rid of her. Everyone is misreading Jesus' reaction, except perhaps the woman. Or maybe, maybe she simply doesn't care what his reaction is. It's my daughter, and you will hear me. In Matthew fifteen twenty four, which we read, he gives his answer and says, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He finally gives this answer, and it appears to be a no answer. You're not part of the house of Israel, the lost sheep. That's who I came to seek and save, that which is lost there. No, I don't know if I can do anything for you. The promise of Messiah, the anointed one, was given to Israel. He would be a descendant of Abraham and David. The Israeli kingdom in which he would rule and reign would have no end. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, when God gives this promise to David, he says, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, your descendant, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is part of the house that he is building. He's building his church house dwelling place for the spirit second samuel if we go down to verse 16 7 16 he says your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you your throne shall be established forever these are promises to israel the kingdom the coming kingdom prophecies of the one who is to come and the things he would do they simply permeate the old covenant scriptures these references jesus explained to the two on the road to emmaus and to his apostles during the 40 days he spent with them after his resurrection. But the first promise of Messiah was given before there was an Israel and before there was a Jew. Back in Genesis 3.15, God putting a curse upon the serpent says, uh, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so we get the promise of the seed of the woman that this one would come through and it would be for the world to all peoples to the serpent your defeat will be at the hand of the seed of the woman the one you deceived how appropriate is that then comes Abraham and the promise to him and his seed in Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 through 3 as the Lord had said to Abraham, get or Abram, get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And what a blessing Abraham is, was, and is. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed through his seed. Now later, uh, in Genesis 22, when uh, Abram, Abraham, at that point, I don't know, I can't remember where his name, I think his name's changed before then. He, uh, after he offers up Isaac, and Isaac is spared, God tells him, in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families, Jew, Gentile, no difference. So, and he repeats this. He reiterates this uh, promise of the blessing and the kingdom uh, to uh, Isaac and to Jacob as well later on. So these 12 tribes of Israel. So the Jews recognized that the Messiah would come to Israel, but they did not seem to consider those scriptures that speak of his being a light to the Gentiles or those that say the Gentiles would come to him. Well, yeah. They might thought, well, you can come to him, you just have to become a Jew. 
to be able to do that. Many people did become proselytes to the Jews, of course. In any case, the gospel remains to the Jew first and also to the Greek or Gentile. Thank God that it remains to the Greek or the Gentile. The Jews are the chosen of God, the elect, and the gifts and callings of God are without repentance, as we're told in Romans 11. But the salvation brought through faith in the gospel is no less to the Gentile than to the Jew. Both are the same in the need and in the means of salvation. In Matthew 15:25, the woman persists. She came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. As she falls down before him, she is crying out to him, and she is worshipping him. Jesus says to her, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Ouch. Is Jesus calling her a dog? This was the typical Jewish appellation of a Gentile. It was a very derogatory term, but his speech is tempered by the word little, as we find in our English translations. This is uh, it's a one word, little dogs, which means... Um, little dogs or puppies it's a diminutive term again it's a derivative of the usual word for dog because it indicates a small animal we begin to see in this response Jesus' true response to the woman and you know we wonder if he's beginning to smile or something you know we don't have any of his expressions or anything because he knows exactly what What's going on? And she answers and says, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Even the little puppies. You know, the children drop something. You know. So the woman's ready with any analogy. She's, she's ready to respond to the Lord and, and make her case. Immediately she pounces upon this opportunity. If you have a dog, you know anything that falls from the table is forfeit. (laughs) The five-second rule does not apply because it's gone long before. (laughs) They scarf it up. Dogs are scarfingers. Uh, I had to look up the word scarf. Of course, it's that thing goes around your neck, you know, in the wintertime, and and high fashion. But it's also used as a transitory verb, scarf, which means to eat or drink voraciously or to devour. That's what the little puppies would do under the table. And Jesus says to her, For this saying, go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. So Jesus grants her request based on her response. But once again, Matthew gives a longer response from Jesus. This is in uh, verse 28 of Matthew 15, where Jesus answers and says to her, O woman, great is your faith. This is the only woman he ever said this to in the records that we have. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. I think Jesus knew this woman's faith when she first came to him. Otherwise, his responses don't make a lot of sense for the Jesus that we know from other passages of Scripture. So Jesus exclaims upon the greatness of her faith. Knew this from the beginning, but her faith was to be tested. The strength of her faith is shown by her persistence. She does not take no, seemingly given in several different ways, for an answer. Once again, we see Hebrews 11:6 in action, where we're told, Without faith, it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The place of faith in our relationship with God. He's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. There's a reward for those who place their faith in God and his promises. Diligently seek is one word in the Greek, and it's a very strong term. It's an intensive seeking. Uh, It's 
they don't have a word to describe it in English, so they always put another word with it, you know, like diligently. See. God will not let faith in him go unrewarded. He will not. Verse 30, when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. So she receives her request from the Lord. And, you know, she then said, Jesus, you got to come and come with me and make sure this is going to work. You know, she takes his word when he gives it to her and she goes home and she finds her daughter there. On verse 31, it says again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. And then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude, put his fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephathah, that is, be opened. And immediately his ears were opened, the impediment of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke plainly. And then he commanded them that they should tell no one. But the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. So he leaves that area. He comes around to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, Galilee to Decapolis, where the area of ten cities. Uh, he's been here before when he cast the legion of demons out of the man of the Gadarenes in chapter 5. Uh, but Jesus passes through this region and returns to the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And they bring to him this man who is deaf and unable to speak clearly and beg him to touch him, uh, of course, for healing. That's what they desire is that this guy would be uh, healed. And so this deaf man who also is not able to speak clearly, uh, we don't know. He may have never heard anybody speak. And so it would be hard for him. Or maybe he's uh, just very little has heard speech in the past. So they beg him to, to heal this man, and Jesus takes him aside from the multitude. Uh, I wonder how far did they have to go to get some privacy? They, they can't get completely away because there are some other people uh, around, you know, later on. Jesus takes him and sticks his fingers in his ears. And, you know, if they meet in the middle, then he says, well, there's, there's the problem, you know. Um, it's the only time Jesus does this and he spits you know, he spits more than once but this is the only time he sticks his fingers in somebody's ears what's Jesus doing is he indicating what he's going to do it's hard to communicate with this guy you know he's going to open his ears and, and loose his tongue because he touches his tongue after he spits is this a sort of sign language since, since the man cannot yet hear Jesus Lane says, through touch and the use of spittle, Jesus entered into the mental world of the man and gained his confidence. Does Jesus spit and touch his tongue with the spittle? doesn't say that. Uh, he does use spit in healing at other times, particularly with blind men, making clay and putting it on their eyes from the spit. You know. Jesus uses spit. Your mom will not let you play with Jesus. He's always spitting. Today he'd be a baseball player. But his is holy spit. That makes all the difference. It's never uh, recommended or commanded that we use spit when praying for healing. Only the people in the front row get that benefit. I don't know if any false teachers have claimed spit healing powers, uh, but that would not surprise me if it has been done. There was a man who led one revival who would kick and punch people quite severely for healing. It's amazing what abuse people will subject themselves to when it is done by a supposed man of God. Um, there was a band that I was familiar with from one song particularly did, and their name was Godsmack. <laughs> and that their name, yeah. If it was a Christian band, it would have been Godspit. <laughs> okay. Well, we know that Jesus didn't have to do any of this to affect a healing. 
So I think he is letting the man know what's going on, what to expect. And this gives the man the opportunity to exercise faith in the power of Jesus to heal. David Guzik says, Jesus used a curious manner in healing this man. Throughout his ministry, Jesus used many different ways of healing. He healed with a word. He healed without a word. He healed in response to one's faith. He healed in response to the faith of another. He healed those who asked, and he healed those he approached. I added, he healed in person, and he healed at a distance. Jesus didn't want to be tied down to any one method to show that his power was not dependent on any method, but on the sovereign power of God. And there's no pigeonholing the work of God. If he did it one way all the time, we would say, well, this is the only way God can work. You know, And we would have had it all pigeonholed and said, God can do things in many different ways and does. God is creative, practical, supremely powerful, and he's full of compassion. In verse 34, Jesus looks to heaven, to the Father, and he speaks the command to the man's ears and tongue be opened. Uh, it's an Aramaic transliteration into the Greek, but it means, it means be opened. Jesus sighs as he prays and commands. And this word for sighs is the same word that's used uh, of our prayers in Romans 8.23, um, where it says, we, we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. It's translated groans, and in Romans 8.26, as groanings. So this is, this is Jesus' sigh, groan uh, over the situation. He makes inter- The Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings, which cannot be uttered, Romans 8.26. And immediately, Mark's favorite word, the man's healed. He can hear and speak plainly. And this blows people's minds. He commands them to tell nobody. Um, You know, he's got his disciples there with him, but there are some other people there because his disciples were not going around telling everybody. Uh, He commands them. We know there are others present. They couldn't get totally away from the multitude. And Jesus commands them not to tell anyone. Uh, One thing people tended to do was not to obey Jesus when he told them to be quiet. They tended, you know, I'm sure Jesus understood it, you know. But there was a purpose in his saying this. He does not uh, curse these people for proclaiming these things abroad. But it does make ministry more difficult for him because of the massive crowds and the way they were treating him. His motive in keeping these things quiet is not because he does not want to minister to people, but because he does want to continue ministering with the least hindrance possible. Mm-hmm. And so these, as his fame became broader and broader, there were a lot more hindrances to his being able to move about and do things. And so then at the last verse in this chapter, they were astonished beyond measure they're astonished by what they've seen and it's impossible to put a measurement upon their astonishment they summed up the ministry and life of Jesus rather well when they said he has done all things well Henry Morris says Jesus indeed hath done all things well one strong evidence of his deity is this very fact No matter how carefully one studies his words and his deeds, no real flaw can be found in any of them. No deficiency, nothing to retract, nothing to change at all. Everything he did or said was exactly right for each occasion. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, speaking of the Messiah, well, it's actually speaking of the kingdom. In verse 5 it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. For waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So this is a time of uh, the kingdom, actually the king's presence. certainly indicative of the Messiah. He's doing these things that are even spoken of in the coming kingdom age 
Samuel Medley uh, had a little poem. I don't know if it was set to music and became a medley. That was his name, Samuel Medley. <laughs> he said, since our souls have learned his love, what mercies has he made us prove? Mercies which all our praise excel, or our Jesus hath done all things well. And then J. Vernon McGee said, at this time, pressure upon Jesus was humanly unbearable. In spite of the pressure put upon Jesus, the burdens of the multitudes, the tensions of the times, the long, busy days, and the weakness of the body, the crowd could say, he hath done all things well. In the midst of situations in which we would not be able to function at all, he does all things well. This is who he is. This is who he will always be. I thought of Hebrews 13.8 where it says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The things he does for Syrophoenician women, the things he does for the deaf and the uh, dumb, he will still continue to do for people that seek him. Um, I wanted to sing the song. Maybe Charlotte could get it started. He's the same. He's the same, a healing Savior. He's the same, a cleansing Lord. He's the same, the King of glory. He's the same, and living proclaim we can proclaim with the multitude he has done all things well <laughs>